Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. It was a heck of a first term for Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. She earned the enmity of Donald Trump, endured a foiled assassination plot, and steadfastly led her state through a tumultuous time. And in November, she emerged as perhaps the biggest winner in what turned out to be a far better midterm election for Democrats than anyone expected. I sat down with her this week to talk about all of this, and here's that conversation. Governor Whitmer, it's great to see you again. It's been a a few years. A lot has happened since the last time we got together here. Hope you had a nice holiday. Thank you. Yes, it was very quiet, which was a wonderful change in the speed of traveling the last four years. (laughs) No, I bet. I'm sure it's a relief to have just one job now, which is uh, being governor. You were a candidate and governor for quite a while there. I was thinking about you uh, as I was thinking about this over the holidays because I know you're a huge sports fan and that, you know, at one point you were headed to ESPN. That was your aspiration. We talked about that last time. What do you do as a Michigan State person when Michigan is in the hunt for the national championship? I mean, do you feel conflicted? I know your daughters are at Michigan, so. Yeah, well, you know, as um, a parent of a couple of Wolverines and the governor of Michigan, you root for whatever Michigan team is playing. Now, prior to parenting Wolverines and being elected governor, I don't know if I would have been so so strategic, but <laughs> anytime Michigan wins, it's good for the state. So I'm I'm all for it. Well, they had a great year. You had a better year, actually, than they did. You went all the way. They almost made it. So tell me, you won by 11 points in a race that everybody thought would be very close in a year that everybody thought would be kind of a disaster for Democrats. Give me your expert analysis and leaving aside your attestations to your essential greatness. Tell me what you think. uh, Why did it turn out the way it did? I think there were a lot of things at play here in Michigan. And, you know, I'm getting lots of questions. How can we replicate what you guys did in Michigan? Because this has only happened four times previously in 130 years. Um, to have it happen in a midterm where we take back both the House and the Senate when all the statewide constitutional offices and get all the ballot initiatives passed. Um, it was a really exciting outcome, not one that I think anyone expected, including me. I knew the path was there, but I thought in a midterm after all the tough stuff we've had to navigate from threats to global pandemics to climate events. Um, I didn't know if we'd realize it all in one fell swoop, but we did. And I think there are a lot of ingredients that made this unique moment in Michigan happen. One was 
we amended our constitution a few years ago to take redistricting away from the legislature. And so for the first time in decades, we had districts that were more fairly drawn. So more people were engaged in those races. More people were engaged and they weren't decided by the fringe in just a primary. They were competitive races where you got more pragmatic problem solvers over the finish line than ideologues. The other piece is we had, uh, I filed a lawsuit before the Dobbs decision came down to protect reproductive rights. Fortunately, Planned Parenthood and ACLU worked together with a lot of, lot of volunteers and got reproductive rights on the ballot. That was a great help to all of us um, who are pro-choice on the ballot. You know, we had an unprecedented group of people that were running, some wonderful candidates, well-funded and better coordinated than we've ever been. And I've been in politics for 20 years in Michigan. As the top of the ticket, it might sound self-serving for me to say it was a better coordination than I've ever seen, but it was because um, we were all on the same page, working in the same direction. And the Republican Party in Michigan was pretty chaotic. Yeah, in fact, a bunch of... uh potential opponents of yours didn't make the ballot because they didn't make the ballot qualifications, the petition qualifications, which is really extraordinary. And one that if I were in that party, I would be scratching my head about and wondering about. Yeah, I wanted to talk more about this issue of abortion. If I, I keep saying that there were two most valuable players for Democrats in 2020. Uh, one was Donald Trump and the other was Samuel Alito, who wrote the Dobbs decision, if the Dobbs decision, if Roe versus Wade had not been overturned, would the election have looked different? I think it probably would have been closer. Um, you know, we had, like I said, there, I credit redrawn districts for some of the success we had in the House and Senate. I ran, you know, 11 points, which was a bigger margin than I had four years ago, yes. which was the biggest in state history at the time. And so um, would that have been smaller? Very possibly. I do know that Reproductive rights was front and center for a lot of voters. I'll tell you, David, I had so many um, reproductive rights roundtables, and we didn't curate who was sitting there. We brought people in because I really wanted to hear and understand. And it was a couple of different of those roundtables. We had formerly strong Republicans at the table who were furious that for 49 years this right has has been there. And now their kids or grandkids might not have basic rights that they had. And they were out knocking doors for me, for Democrats. And um, it, it definitely, I think that was when I really saw, okay, we're, we're going to win this thing. And I think we're going to really surprise people that if you look at where the polls are, um, getting the pulse of the people by talking and listening, I think is incredibly valuable. And, and that was, I think, when I really felt like we're going to have a really good a really good day on November 8th. And of course, the, the uh, ballot initiative that enshrined abortion rights in the Constitution of the state of Michigan won overwhelmingly uh, 60-40 there. So that, that speaks to your point. Your opponent was uh, ardently uh, anti-choice. And so the, the distinction was very, very clear. Yeah, she um, did an interview shortly after winning her primary. And Going into the primary, it was a dead heat. There were five of them that had made the ballot, 10 who wanted to, five of which were thrown off, as you mentioned, Yes, five of whom faced off in that primary. And uh, the former president endorsed her four days before the election, and she won by 20 points. And I think that was also a moment where we thought, okay, he's really still very persuasive with a Republican primary voter. And 
she did a couple of interviews shortly after that primary, and she shared that she thought a 14-year-old raped by an uncle was, in her words, a perfect example of someone who should not be able to make a choice to terminate a pregnancy. And I think it was so cruel and out of step with even the average anti-choice person that it was that phrase out of her mouth that we used on most of our commercials because I think it was important people knew just how extreme and and that really, I think, made a huge impact. Yeah. I mean, I presume her, as with most people who, who take that position, is that a life is a life and however it's created and so on, but clearly not the view that is held by the majority of Americans, majority of people in Michigan, that a person who's, who's raped should be forced to go through, carry through that pregnancy. You have a particular connection to this issue. Uh, I mean, wh- when you were in the legislature, and we talked about this last time, you made a difficult decision when abortion rights were being debated in the legislature to reveal that you had been the victim of, of sexual assault. How personally, how motivated were you? Because there was this great piece in the Washington Post uh, profile of you and your daughters that talked about how sort of electrified you were when this came down and motivated to talk about your own personal reaction to all these events. I think, you know, I've shared many times publicly that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, I think that's when I really was fearful that the ability to make decisions, you know, for women to make their own decisions about when and whether to have a a child, carry a child to term, was really in jeopardy. And as a survivor, you know, I was participated in a debate on the floor where they were um, taking away insurance coverage for abortion care. DNC, selective reduction in IVF, like all of these different procedures were, would have been impacted. And they weren't listening to a single woman or a healthcare provider. And so I shared my story that, you know, as a rape survivor, had I been impregnated, um, I would not have been able to get, you know, get the abortion care that I would have wanted. And so that's why when, you know, with Justice Ginsburg's passing and the imminent appointment of Amy Coney Barrett um, and looking at my daughters who are were 18 and 20 at the time, thinking I've got to do everything I can to protect this right because God forbid this circumstance that I lived through happens to anyone else, especially you know someone I'm close to. I want to make sure they've got the basic health care rights that I knew I could have if I needed them. So I, I think it was personal. I, in From my experience, I, you know, I've I'm never going to need reproductive health care. I'm at that stage of life where I can say that comfortably and know that to be the case. But it's not about me. It's about all of the other women and girls and families and and my own girls. And that's that motivates so much of what I do from how I conduct myself to the issues I tackle. I want to make sure that my girls, just like all women and girls in this state, can have access to the care they need. Nationally, there were, I think, five ballot initiatives around the country, uh, one to actually tighten abortion restrictions in Kentucky and the others to enshrine them as as your state did. The verdict in each case was the same. But we're still where we are, where we have this patchwork in this country. What do you see the future as being for abortion rights? And how is that going to affect the country, how people make their decisions where to live, how businesses make their decisions where to locate, and so on. 
Well, I, you know, plan to use this moment in Michigan as a strength for my state. You know, I want to go into Indiana and Ohio and recruit talent and recruit businesses. You want employees to have full panoply of healthcare at their disposal, you come to Michigan. Um, there are a lot of women graduating from engineering schools across the country right now. They are going to make decisions about where to build their lives. And um, as a parent, had I not won this fight here, I would encourage my girls to consider going to a place where they can make their own decisions and have access to um, the care that they need. And my oldest is a lesbian. I would encourage her to go to a state where she's got full civil rights protections under the law. That's the mom in me. It's also the governor in me that knows since we've enshrined these rights, it's a strength for us. And we can use this perhaps as an opportunity to um, show that doing the right thing on these issues inures to everyone's economic benefit in the state. I remember when Eli Lilly said they weren't going to be doing more investment in Indiana because of their restrictive law. I think that's a, a moment an opportunity for me to go in and tell the story of Michigan and see if I can get them to move a little a little ways north. <laughs> I want to ask you about the conflict or, or the tensions between being a mom and being a governor, because one of the things that struck me about that piece in the Post was that your daughters participated in it, and they were very frank about it, about their lives and their choices. And, their, and in it, uh, Ruby Kramer, who's a wonderful writer for the Post, wrote about your daughters. They were 11 and 10 years old when amid a fight about abortion, Whitmer first decided to publicly share the story of how she'd been raped as a freshman at Michigan State. They were 14 and 13 when she started running for governor. They were 18 and 16 when together were their mom and their stepfather, Mark, and their dog, Kevin. I remember Kevin from our last discussion. They huddled as a family into the guest in the guest bedroom, the only area of the governor's mansion with a good view of the street, to peer protesters outside waving signs objecting to Michigan's strict stay-at-home order during the COVID pandemic. And they were 18 and 16 when just a few months later at dinner one night, their mom told them, just so you know, there was going to be a story coming out about some people plotting to kidnap and kill me that resulted in prosecutions that continued through this year in terms of sentencing. How do you make the decision about what to expose your kids to and what kind of sacrifices do they have to make because their moms, and this would be true if, 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 if their dads are in politics as well, but because their mom's governor of the state. I've always had a very frank uh, relationship with my daughters. I, I don't have a poker face, David. I, I say, call it the way I see it, and I tell people where I'm at at you know, I, I just don't have it in me to play games. I don't know if I have the energy or I'm just not cunning enough to do that. But, um, you know, I think it's important to be honest with my kids. They're smart. All kids are smart. They know when something's going on and it's better for them to hear from the parent so that they can feel secure in what the information is than wonder or let their minds tell a story or get information from someone else. My girls are, they're kind of like me. They're stoic. Uh-huh by nature. And I'm glad that they are at school and they have their father's last name. So they don't immediately get identified as my kids, which I think is important. College is when you should make your own way and experiment, learn who you are and, and grow. But, you know, it's been, it's challenging. They, they worry about me. My husband is a dentist or he was, he retired two years ago because he was going to work for about seven, eight more years. And he started getting threats at his office. Mm. 
the same kind of threats I was getting. But he didn't have all the state police with him all the time. And he was worried about his patients and his staff. And so he decided to retire. And he's doing just fine. But it's a huge sacrifice. His last eight years of his best earning years, you know, planning for his retirement, he's had to had to not do it. And he doesn't complain about it. But I, I do think I share that with you because, you know, as well as anybody, it it takes a toll and the environment that we're navigating is so the rhetoric of threats that people are so cavalier in making, it's it's become so dangerous. And I think that's why these prosecutions and convictions are so important because we cannot let this become the norm. We cannot let this go unaccount you know, unaccounted for. And so um I'm gonna continue to to do what I need to do to do my job, but I'm always thinking about my family and what it means for them. Yeah, no, I I think it's an unappreciated part of public service these days. There's always been sacrifice involved, but now more so than ever. Let me just ask you one thing about the point you made about your husband. That has to be hard, hard on a relationship to ask these kinds of sacrifices. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, like I said, this you make your retirement plan and you build it out at then, you know, everything kind of changes and um, he did what he needed to do and he he doesn't begrudge me a, a second of it, but he's, but he's not happy about the rhetoric and all the ugliness that has come my way. Or Do you feel guilty about it sometime? I, well, I wish it weren't so. That's for mm-hmm. sure. I do. But um, now Kevin and we got another dog named Doug have <laughs> uh, a parent here at all times. So I <laughs> There's an upside. So they're the beneficiary. They're not unhappy at all. You know, you talk about the environment, and I I know that you don't like to dwell on this episode, but for most Americans, for me certainly, it was shocking to hear about that plot against you. When you first heard about it, what did you feel? What did you think? You know, my um, state police detail uh called and said, you know, we need to sit down with you and, and walk through some things. And they told me about the FBI and the informant and that this was happening. And I got word probably four months before it became public. And so I had a, some time to kind of process it and to ask questions and be comfortable that while they were, all these things were happening, that, you know, the incredible law enforcement folks at the FBI and state police were were on it and that I was safe. Um, I shared it with, you know, my family shortly because before it was becoming public, but I was just shocked. You know, I, I saw the protests and images of me hung, you know, from an effigy and all sorts of horrible um, placards and yeah, things right. were saying, but um, that this many people participated in this in-depth plot to kidnap and kill me and stake out, you know, my summer residence, et cetera. It was really striking about how much planning and how serious this was. Yeah. As you know, I, I have a place in, in uh, Southwest Michigan myself, and the lawn signs that people had up that referenced you and not as the loving daughter of a loving mother, you know, they were, they were, they were not flattering, was shocking to me. Signs that I wouldn't want my grandchildren to see or my, you know, really awful. How much do you ascribe that to Donald Trump, who confronted you very aggressively in that period? You put in the strictures that you thought were necessary to protect public health, 
and he was tweeting liberate Michigan and so on, which, you know, obviously some people took as a battle cry. Yeah, a lot of it. I do. I, I, I think he's responsible for a lot of it. And here's why. You know, we were building 50 planes while we were flying them, me and my fellow governors. We didn't have a whole lot of guidance or help. In fact, they were undermining our efforts from the federal government, um, encouraging people to drink disinfectant as opposed to go get, you know, just wear a mask. When the former president attacked me, you know, singled me out, calling me that woman from Michigan and all sorts of other insults. Well, you being a woman from Michigan wasn't an insult, but the way he deployed yeah. it was, that's for sure. Said, Mike, don't call that woman from Michigan. <laughs> yeah, right, don't exactly. return the governor of Michigan's <laughs> phone calls is what he was essentially saying. And it was when he singled me out and started attacking me, I had lost all support from my Republican-led legislature. They had been with me. We'd been keeping them close. We'd been telling them why we were making the decisions we were, and they had supported them up until that time. And soon as he turned on me, the legislature did, and they started filing lawsuits to take away my powers. They started um, holding rallies on on the lawn, and it changed the whole dynamic. And I called um, the former vice president, Mike Pence, a number of times, and I said, I need you to get the rhetoric to cool down. Someone is going to get killed. I've said that. I had three different phone calls with him on it. I talked to my legislative leadership here in Lansing, the House and Senate Republican leaders. No one changed a darn thing. And I do think that that fomented and fed into um, all of the kind of the, the, the heat that came that ultimately um, contributed to, you know, the armed protests at my Capitol nine months before January 6th, and then the plot to kidnap him and to kill me. Do you think, and obviously he's back and he's running for, or ostensibly running for president again in a very weird sort of way. But do you think that this fever is breaking in any way? Do you interpret the results of last November in which a lot of the candidates that he endorsed, including the person you ran against, uh, were defeated. Do you think we're turning a corner? Because as we sit here, they're having a hell of a time in Washington trying to organize the Congress. And there's some tremors of all of this. Well, it's interesting. You know, here in Michigan, the Republican establishment was always led by Betsy DeVos and her family. And the world knows who they are now um, after the Trump administration. They were unable to get their candidates through the Republican convention last year. And so they would be what I would consider more of the traditional Republicans. I mean, very conservative, very, you know, kind of extreme from my perspective, but not necessarily Trump Republicans. And Trump Republicans beat the DeVos candidates up and down the convention. And and so... I do think that the general public is, um, they're losing persuasion with the general public, but within the activists who determine conventions and um, who often set the agenda, it's still very um, Trump Republican controls right now, at least here in Michigan. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Bell Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. You know, you used a phrase earlier uh, about pragmatic problem solver, which is a phrase that appeals to me. But I'm interested in that because there is this tug and pull between ideology and, and sort of a more pragmatic approach. How much does being in a state i mean it was you were 11 the last time that the democrats controlled the house the senate and the governor's office and so in all your 14 years in the legislature you were in the minority in all your four years as governor you had to work with a republican legislature what kind of habits did that form in you and how did that form you as a politician well throughout my whole career i've had to find common ground with people You know, I never could have gotten a single budget done if I wasn't able to sit at the table with the Republican leadership in Lansing uh, these last four years. And and frankly, there's a lot of wild stuff that happened from these Republican leaders. One went full kind of QAnon toward the end of the term and the other is being prosecuted for some crime. So but I as a governor and as someone who's served in the minority the whole time, you don't have the luxury of just going blow for blow. You've got to be able to let the noise clear and get back to the table and get things done. And, you know, I think I shared with you last time we talked, my my father was a, a commerce director under yes. Bill McCann, Republican governor. My mother worked for a Democratic attorney Very general. different kind of Republican, but yes. Absolutely. I mean, that was a time when Midwestern Republicanism was very, very moderate, kind of pragmatic, as you suggest. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it, it, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's um, it, that Republican Party was pro-choice and pro-environment and, yeah. you know, very different. But, I, you know, I, I, I think that part of my experience and my upbringing is we've got to try to find common ground. It's not always, we're not always able to, and that's okay. Uh, but we have to try. And at the end of the day, I've got a job to do. I swore an oath to the Constitution of Michigan, not to the ideology of one political party. I'm a Democrat. I'm a pro-Democrat. I've never considered a, having becoming a member in another party. At the same token, 
I got to get things done. And in order to get things done, I got to put the boats together. And you can ask Kevin McCarthy how important it is to be able to count boats. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. You might give him a call. I think he needs some advice right now. <laughs> I was interested. You told, really, it was a message to Democrats once you won both these houses and in the last few weeks as you've taken office for your second term to be thoughtful about where you put your energies because you only have a two-vote majority in both houses. And it sounded to me like kind of a call for pragmatism, call for moderation. Uh, do you think the party, that there's a danger that the Democratic Party, because, you know, this is a big debate, has gotten a little off track at times and become too ideological? Wait, you know what's interesting? In every caucus I've been a part of, there's always a debate. Is our job to reflect the people we serve or to lead the people we serve? Like when your constituency and your conscience don't, you know, perfectly match. What is your role? Do you put your conscience aside and you do what you think the people, you know, would reflect? Or do you do, do you recognize that people hired you for your judgment? And so I do think that it's important for us to solve problems. The average person in Michigan in the grocery store right now doesn't know or care what the politics are of the house member whose district they live in. What they want is a little help so that they can afford to get the same groceries they got a year ago at the same price or or save some money. And so we've got to solve problems. We'll never get the opportunity to continue leading if people don't see how we've been able to help them get have a better life. And so I did tell the Democrats, you know, we're, let's celebrate this moment, but let's also be un- understand. I don't want to hear anyone use the word mandate. I want to say this is an affirmation we're fighting for the right things, and that's what we're going to keep doing. What about the f- sort of focus on kind of cultural issues, social issues, versus sort of these kitchen table economic issues? I get a lot of questions toward the end of the campaign. Was I talking too much about abortion? And should I actually have been talking more about the economy? And I made a quip, and I don't know if my communications people were real happy with it, but I said, listen. If you don't think abortion is an economic issue, you probably Mm -hmm. don't have a uterus. Mm -hmm. The most important decision a woman will make in her lifetime is whether and when to have a baby. That's the biggest economic decision you'll ever make as a woman. And so I'm always reticent when people want to peel off an issue as opposed and juxtapose it to the economy because whether your kids are getting the individualized tutoring they need or have access to a, a a library that has a an array of things to read, those are going to impact that child's long-term economic ability. And so I think that my opponent really tried to weigh in on books and libraries and would not take a position on guns in schools. And I made the comment, I, do you really think books are more dangerous to our kids than guns? I saw that. You did that in a debate. Yeah. I think we have a tendency to want to, you know, dance around issues. We need to talk about abortion as abortion. We need to talk, you know, we need to have very blunt conversations about what matters and and always connect it back to what's it going to mean for your ability to get ahead in this world. You had a really, as we mentioned, strong victory. And yet you carried, I think, what, 18 counties out of 
83. And this is emblematic of what's happened nationally. We, you know, you look at the map and uh, Donald Trump lost the election by 7 million votes in 2020, but he carried 83% of the counties in the country, mostly small, you know, rural counties and small towns. What do Democrats need to do to do better in those areas? Because it seems to me that's a real challenge. This whole rural urban divide and just reliance on metropolitan voters to the exclusion of voters in smaller communities. I know you're asking me a leading question because you know this better than anybody, but you got to show up and you got to listen. And when you do that, when you're really listening to people, you don't get distracted by things that don't matter. It keeps you focused on what does. And so I did get into all 83 counties and I did, I outperformed four years ago in, in a lot of counties. I still lost those counties. It was a smaller number. Yeah. But I, I think that when, when you show up and you listen, you focus on the things that are really going to help people. So when I closed the gap in how our schools are funded, or wealthy areas used to get a lot more and districts with fewer resources did, that disproportionately helped urban schools and rural schools. Um, when I build out a new office of urban development um, I'm sorry, rural development in our Department of Agriculture. That was feedback I got from people in our more rural areas that they wanted one point in state government to to reach in so that they could access resources that are available. So I, I think showing up and listening. Um, it's it's simple, but it's it's difficult, but crucial. Yeah, I know. I remind people the guy I worked for, who was a you remember a black guy from Chicago, yep. carried the state of Indiana, you know, came within two points of carrying the state of Montana, almost carried Missouri. And we campaigned in all these places. And I think it's not just a matter of showing up, but it's a matter of showing respect of telling people, yeah, you actually count. Because honestly, what Trump exploited was a sense on the part of a lot of people that maybe maybe they didn't have a place in the... Yep in the Democratic Party. Maybe the Democratic Party had written their areas off. I, I want to ask you, you know, you spent a year telling everybody what you've done right. What did you not do right? And what did you learn from it? I mean, there must be things where you look back and say, gee, I wish I had that one back. Yeah. Well, I came out, I told people I was going to fix the damn roads and I came out of the blocks with a 45 cent gas tax. Yes. That's the ad I would have read. I would have run against me the whole time, by the way, yes. but yes. why they didn't do it. But I'm glad they did. <laughs> but, you know, I, like I said, I'm not a poker player. If I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And so it's a problem that we had to fix. My legislature wouldn't go with me. I look back on it and especially during the campaign, wonder, gosh, maybe I should have done that. But it was, it was an earnest attempt to actually fix the problem I said I was gonna I was gonna try to fix. Let me ask you, way before you go on, uh, because I'm not gonna let you get away with just one. Uh, before you go on, you're still committed to fixing the damn roads. And I, as a person who lives in Michigan, a part of the year, I'm very invested in you succeeding in that. But you still have to figure out how to fund them in the long term. And if you don't have a gas tax, and honestly, with electric cars coming online not clear that a gas tax is the long-term solution. How do you do it? No state's figured it out yet. Oregon's got some pilot programs that they are utilizing. But I think to your point, as we transition from the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles, 
a gas tax is an outdated, insufficient way to do it long term. So uh, I am pulling folks together to make a proposal of what would actually be an equitable way of ensuring that people using the roads are helping pay for them. Uh, but, it, you know, no state's figured it out yet, but I'm confident we're going to we're going to lead the way here. OK, so anyway, back to your mistakes. What are some of those? And I, I guess I should ask you about COVID because I thought you were very bold and appropriately so in trying to save lives in your state. And you were one of the first to issue, uh, uh, you know, shut down the schools and shut down orders and so on. This is what occasioned, you know, the the reaction that you got, including these terrorists who wanted to kidnap you. You did what you did based on what you knew then, and we were in uncharted waters. What would you have done differently now? Yeah, if I could go back in a time machine with the knowledge we've accumulated, could I do things different? Absolutely. And every governor in the country, I'm confident, would say the same thing. If you had the benefit of what we know now, but it's a new virus. And the experts that I was listening to, you know, Detroit was heating up at the same time. Chicago and Illinois, uh, I'm sorry, Chicago and New York and New Orleans. We were all in the soup early on and it was scary. We had um, refrigerated trucks outside of hospitals because we didn't have place for the bodies. Our nurses and doctors didn't have masks. Um, I was listening to our experts who a lot of the advice was based on the last global pandemic from 1918 that disproportionately killed children. And that was part of why we got kids out of school as quickly as we did. And Illinois was right behind us, as was Ohio. So Republicans and Democrats, we were all navigating and helping one another, too. If I could go back and do some things differently, I'd make Michigan the mask producers of the world before going into the pandemic um, so that we could keep more people safe. Um, but, you know, Dave, there were a lot of things that we had to make a tough call on. Um try to get the best information we could, including talking to people like Scott Gottlieb and Zeke Emanuel and, um, you know, national experts. And, you know, uh, but I, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm a human being and I am, I am not a scientist. I am not an epidemiologist or a public health expert. And that's why I sought out the smartest people I could find and I listened to them. The backlash, probably the sharpest backlash came about not just the closing of schools, but the reopening of schools and the timing of reopening of schools. You're obviously a very committed parent. And so I'm sure you, when you go around listening, that was one of the things that you heard. And now we know that these young people paid a tremendous price for the time they spent out of the classroom. Is the timing of all of that when they got back in the classroom, is that something that you think about on reflection as maybe could have been done differently? Oh, absolutely. You know, Michigan is a geographically large state too, and we had different COVID concentrations in different parts of the state. And so we had kind of a battle playing out between locals. We don't have COVID numbers. We should all be able to do this, you know. So there were a lot of layers to, to you know, try to navigate this and lots of unhappy people with every decision that had to be made. When we did get kids back in school, I took a lot of heat from people on the left who thought it was too early. You know, there was, there was no decision that was easy to make or was popular. At the end of the day, though, I knew I had to 
get as much information as I could and make the call that I, I could live with. And had this pandemic been like 1918 and we not taking kids out of school, a lot of families would have lost their little kids. And that was something first and foremost on, on my mind as I was making those those hard decisions. That's kind of what you have to do in your, in executive offices is make the best decision you can and live with them. You could probably drive yourself nuts asking what would have, should have, could have. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Years ago, uh, when you were in the legislature, I think 2012, when Michigan had the battle over imposing a right-to-work law, the organizing against kind of took place out of your office in the legislature. And now you have an opportunity to change that. Will you do that? And what do you say to the typical argument in response, which is, you're going to dampen the Michigan economy. You're going to hinder the Michigan economy. I presume this could be one of the big debates that you face in the next few months. Yeah, well, I was the Senate minority leader when uh, my predecessor at the last minute decided to pursue taking away workers' rights. And, you know, I was in the minority. They uh, was passed on a party line vote largely. And um, the promise was that it was going to, create so many jobs. And um, the fear was that it would just absolutely devastate organized labor. It's been hard for organized labor, but it hasn't devastated. We've actually seen growth in unions. I think, especially after the pandemic, employees understand that being able to join voices and negotiate for good wages and time off with family and healthcare is really important. And I think that's part of why we've seen some growth in unions over the mm -hmm. last years. I also would submit that you look at the big three who, when President Obama was president, thankfully he and uh, Vice President Biden at the time, made Detroit, made it spend a lot of time in Detroit trying to help because we had such a unique uh, issue happening in the automotive industry. Mm -hmm. Right now, as we look at the weakness, the potential weaknesses in the economy, the autos are a huge strength. Um, and they have a unionized workforce, and it has been really important for them navigating COVID. Those union jobs are created predictability in a workforce that continues to show up. And so we'll have a lot of debates, but um, no one's going to be surprised what my position is on on this issue. And I think it will ultimately in order for the strength of the Michigan economy. You had a horrendous 
school shooting at uh, Oxford High School in Michigan uh, in 2021, you uh, have signaled that you want to move forward on some gun safety measures in the legislature. Uh, How difficult is that going to be? What do you want to do and how difficult do you anticipate will be as this has become, you know, a flare point in our politics? I think anytime you're having a conversation around, you know, some common sense safety measures, it's going to have a lot of debate. And that's, I'm not afraid of debate. I think it's important to have gun owners at the table as we are designing a smarter system so that we can keep more people safe. I know enough hunters and recreational gun owners who feel very strongly that we should have some background checks and some red flag laws and and require secure storage. These are some proven measures that would help keep the guns out of of dangerous people's hands and that um, I think we can get over the finish line. I think we also need to talk about guns as a public health issue. You know, there's only, it's only in this country that the number one killer of our children are guns. It doesn't happen in any other country. And we can't talk about public safety just by beefing up police forces. We have to also talk about guns. And I, I think in this last election, we saw a, a more um, distinct conversation on this subject. And we saw a lot of people engage who weren't engaged before because they worry about their kids or they worry about their communities. So I do think that there's a path here, but I'm sober about the fact that um, we've got to be thoughtful on, on how we how we walk it. But I, I do see the path. One thing you've talked about before that isn't part of the package that you're talking about now is an assault weapons ban. This was a semi-automatic handgun that this uh, shooter used at Oxford High School. I presume that's one of the things that you think you couldn't get past the finish line. I think we should start with things like secure storage. If this shooter's parents had secured their firearm, the poor kids who were killed might be spared. The eight that were injured might not have been in a community that's been traumatized, might not have be suffering through PTSD as a result of this. So I do think that there are some measures we could get done and, and then, then perhaps continue the conversation. So I was uh, specifically asked by your staff not to ask you about running for president. And so I, I won't ask about running about you running for president, particularly because it now seems the president is poised to run for re-election. So it takes us both off the hook. But I do want to ask you about the fact that your name comes up a lot. And how do you process that? That when people say, well, who is the next generation after Biden? Your name is always right at the top of the list how do you think about that? It's flattering, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, David, to be honest. No, I feel really grateful to be where I'm at, um, to have four more years to do the job I've always wanted in a very brand new uh, environment in Michigan. It'll be maybe the best time to do this job over the next four years. And um, I'm also served with some phenomenal governors across the country. You know, I'm excited about people like Maura Healy coming into yeah. office. Twelve women, is that right, in this coming year? Eight Democratic women, yes, and four Republicans. We've, you know, doubled our ranks on the Democratic side, and we Democratic governors represent the majority of this country right now when it comes to population. It's exciting, and there are some phenomenal stars 
um, all across our ranks. And uh, I've, I've learned a lot from my colleagues. And I do think that this executive experience is important and could be could benefit someone running for president at some point. But um, that's about all I've thought about in this juncture. Yeah, well, that's very disciplined. You, uh, uh, but let let me ask you related to that. I've spoken to some of your fellow governors, uh, female governors, and people who have been governors who who are females, and they were pretty candid about the extra kind of burden on women running for executive offices. and And I wonder if you've what your thoughts are on that. And you, in particular, I mean, you you're a strong person. And you've had to make some very hard uh, decisions in this kind of cauldron that we saw uh, over the last four years. And you had, as you point out, some really ugly things said about you, apart from the threats. But are there barriers to women in these executive offices? And would there be to a woman running uh, for president? And how do you overcome those? I'll just say we've made some great strides, but there's we're still treated very differently. And I don't talk about it a whole lot because I don't know that it does me any good. Of course. But I'm going to entertain it because I'm on your show and you pose the question. So I'll just Thank say Thank you. That. I appreciate that. <laughs> During COVID, you know, I I put together a group of, we call us the Midwest governors. It was Tony Ebers from Wisconsin, then mm-hmm. Tim Wallace from Minnesota, and J.B. Pritzker from Illinois, Mike DeWine from Ohio, Eric Holcomb from Indiana, and we adapted Andy Bashir, because I just figured he could use some friends. He was relatively <laughs> new to the group. And I organized it. I mean, I think a lot of women would say, oh, there's no shot there. But anyway, uh, we would have our conversations. And a lot of us were had a lot of protesters. And one of my colleagues said, but Gretchen, I don't understand. You're doing the same thing that we are. Well, you're getting so much more heat. You're getting so many more threats than we are. Why is that? And as the last word landed, he said, wait, don't answer that question. I have already figured it out. I know you're the woman here. And um, that's kind of stayed with me because Andy Bashir got the ugliness too. And so did Mike DeWine. You know, mm-hmm. we all got it in some form. J.B. Pritzker dealt with, you know, uh, anti-Semitism on top mm-hmm. of everything else. And, but it was different. And the just even the way that the plot was covered is covered as a kidnapping plot, not an assassination attempt. And you think about that versus kind of how the Brett Kavanaugh one person turned himself in was was covered. It tells you that there still is a, a striking difference, and probably additional hurdles come with come with that different treatment. Still, I would assume. Yeah, but presumably the election of more women suggests that there is progress. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before I let you go, just let me just ask you, because I, I referenced the spectacle in Washington. As we speak, they're going through, I don't know what ballot to try and choose a Speaker of the House. And there's obviously deep, deep, maybe irreconcilable differences within uh, that party. But it speaks to a larger thing, which is the coarseness of our politics. And what can you say that would give me, that give folks who are listening, uh, hope that we can get to a better place? that we are not destined and doomed by algorithms and crazy politicians on the poles of our politics to hate each other. You're asking a really important question, and I'll just say this. 
as I got across the state of Michigan and listened to people and talked to people and connected with people, I it 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 filled me with hope. When I showed up after a historic flooding situation, climate change, right? Um, I saw a community coming together to help one another. In the wake of a school shooting, I saw some of the the kindness, best, most generous things happening in the community. Now, it shouldn't take a horrible thing for us to see that. But if if you can seek out the humanity and connect with people, there's a lot of reason to have great hope. And I'll leave you with this. On election day, we saw lines of students on campuses all across Michigan. Young people who were determined to make their voices heard, who understood the high stakes of the moment, and um, were thoughtful, informed, engaged citizens. That's inspiring in and of itself. So when I'm disconnected from people or I'm spending too much time on social media, I see a commensurate drop in my attitude. When I am actually engaged with real flesh and blood people and seeking out the humanity and looking for inspiration, it's everywhere. Well, that's a great place to stop. Governor, it's always good to be with you. I hope we'll have more conversations. Good luck in your in your second term. Good luck to uh, both the Spartans and the Wolverines. And we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.